I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 30th. Coming up, today we bring you a special edition of How on Earth with a full-length feature interview on the state of artificial intelligence with Dr. Mark Nitzberg, author of Solomon's Code, Humanity in a World of Thinking Machines, a book which examines how, in today's world, sophisticated algorithms obscure the mechanisms of choice, influence, and power. Computer systems manage your mutual funds, match you up with a date, guide you through traffic, filter through the cacophony of social networks to bring you feeds and stories and information tailored especially for you. Perhaps it also guides that surveillance drone overhead. Are those machines thinking? I don't know. Either way, more changes are definitely coming. Will it bring upheaval or catastrophe? Or maybe just another bump in the road on the way to our future. It may not be possible to tell right now, but we should start with a little investigation about how we got here and got here so fast. We have an interview today with Dr. Mark Nitzberg. Dr. Mark Nitzberg, Ph.D., is co-author of Solomon's Code and executive director of the Center for Human Compatible AI at the University of California at Berkeley. He works with think tank network Cambrian.ai and advises startups as a computer scientist and serial social entrepreneur. I started my conversation by asking Dr. Nitzberg to describe what goes on at the Center for Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence, known by the acronym CHI. The mission of uh, what we call CHI is to reorient the thrust of AI research towards provably beneficial systems, that is, systems that are known to be safe and aligned with what's proper for people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you feel then that historically or in the recent past, the, the thrust has been, shall we say, without guidance? I think that's fair to say because it was essentially believed to be so far in the future or virtually impossible, uh, we have bounded forth creating systems uh, that were meant to achieve their objectives uh, and, and not ours. And so this is uh, 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 an attempt to really rethink AI from the ground up uh, with the eye on on what's right for us, as opposed to building a system that simply achieves its own objectives. We then talked a bit about how the state of artificial intelligence has changed over the past few decades. 
a few decades ago when I was going to college, I learned about something called expert systems. And these are sort of flowcharts or if-then kind of logic. They're decision trees, carefully designed, uh, you know, to match how experts make their decision, hopefully to emulate their judgment. And I guess once you can automate the input to those decision trees, you effectively have machines making decisions. So there's been a lot of research and development done in the past few decades. I suppose that's what you've been doing at MIT and, and Harvard. Has the, the changes in how machines think, is it, is it a qualitative change? Is it completely different than an expert system, or is it just quantitative? More of the same decisions, just more of them and faster? Well, I think it's, it's qualitative. The big change from expert systems is that while they take heuristic information that is clearly defined, you know, if this is true, then you should... Uh, uh, take this decision. So like if it's uh, raining... What you... we are now seeing... I was going to give an example. Like if I'm it's sorry. raining, you don't need to have your sprinkler system on? Right. Yeah. That's a good one. Instead, what, what we're seeing, and the reason that we're talking about artificial intelligence now, is because of the breakthrough in what's called deep networks or deep learning. And this takes a large amount of data that is labeled. So for example... Uh, you have a large set of images of uh, e- either uh, tumors or non-tumors or benign tumors and, and cancerous tumors, and they are labeled you know, by doctors and, in fact, can be 100% correct or very close to that. And the, the system is then trained on the, that set of images. Uh, and then there's a set of test images, which are also labeled data, uh, and the system is trained, and it learns from that data uh, to to categorize the test images with at least the same accuracy as as doctors would. So that sounds a little bit and like that, the job description of a radiologist. That's right. That's true. And the, these systems are useful in giving guidance to radiologists. Uh, it, the jury is still out whether they can be replaced uh, mm-hmm. because there are situations where they're wrong, and there are situations where radiologists are wrong, and it turns out that they're wrong in different situations. So even if you have a system that, when trained, does a better job, that is, it's right 98% of the time, where most radiologists are right 97% of the time, you still have the situation where it's wrong. And uh, when when it's wrong, it it's not the same kind of wrong that it um, radiologists might make, and that um, that in that situation, you have a radiologist look it over and say, "Oh gosh, well, that's wrong," and I see why. We really need to be using these systems in in tandem and as guidance, rather than thinking of them as as a replacement. Neural networks are an idea that go way back in the field of computer science and theories of cognition. However, recent and unexpectedly fast advances in underlying technology have brought the neural network from laboratories and lecture halls of graduate seminars and into devices and systems that pervade everyday life. Well, before diving into this topic of neural networks, Dr. Nitzberg pauses to give a definition of artificial intelligence. I think I'm going to start with defining AI, 
I find it useful to give a simple, clear definition of AI. And there are two levels of AI that we talk about. One we describe as narrow AI. And this is describing typically uh, what we see when you're talking to your phone and it seems to be uh, responding to you. Uh, that is a narrow AI, um, speech recognition and, and dialogue. Um, so, so narrow AI is defined as technology which gives the appearance of cognitive behavior. Mm-hmm. Very important to distinguish that from uh, technology which, which thinks. Uh, and then general AI is kind of the big version of it, or sometimes called artificial general intelligence, um, and this is the, the, the version of AI that you see uh, represented uh, in Hollywood and, and in the media uh, as, as being dangerous and so forth. Uh, general AI is defined as, as technology that can perform uh, cognitive tasks in every area in which there is any kind of cognitive behavior uh, at the human level or, or better. So it can perform any human cognitive task at, at least as good as, as a person. Um, and, and that is uh, something that, depending on who you talk to, uh, could be around the corner. Uh, it's not uh, universally believed to be possible with our current uh, uh, breakthrough, which, which you've just described, uh, neural networks. Um, it will require a number of additional breakthroughs, um, but... Which, which may be possible in the coming years, uh, uh, and, and others uh, will tell you that uh, it's going to take 800 years to never. <laughs> so, so there's a wide that, range of the, opinions. The, 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 that's the background of, of you know, what is AI, right? Narrow AI is here, you know, it was here 10 years ago, depending on how you think about it. Uh, machines that seem to exhibit cognitive behavior uh, have, have been around for a while, um, uh, playing chess and uh, uh, but the, the breakthrough that you're describing, neural networks, uh, is really the result of three things. The, the availability of a large amount of data. Because the, we have the Internet and we have uh, Internet-connected devices that are quite powerful and that, that have some perceptual inputs, that is uh, the, the microphone and a GPS and, and a camera and so on, can all, all interconnected to the internet, and so huge amounts of data have been have become available, and then the level of processing power available in the cloud uh, from the big digital companies has increased dramatically uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, and then these algorithms were available, but they they were not applied with with large amounts of data and such. Uh, vast uh, quantities of processing power until fairly recently. It was about 10 years ago uh, that there were breakthroughs in image understanding. Um, that is uh, the ability to recognize uh, any of uh, a thousand different types of, of object from any angle, from uh, any kind of photograph of it, uh, reached about the human level. It leapt up to near human levels about 10 years ago and it reached about the human level about eight years ago. And so that was the real breakthrough that caught everyone's attention. The buildings in Silicon Valley started changing their signs from .com to .ai around six years ago. Um, And so there are a lot of AI startups because 
after this breakthrough in image understanding, there were successive breakthroughs applying the same technology in speech recognition, that is, Siri and Alexa, Alexa and so forth, mm-hmm. and then language translation and, uh, in general, predictive analytics, um, that is, uh, people who uh, like this series uh, uh, tended to also like that one or like this book tended to like that or people. You know, that sort of thing. Recommender and, systems. And this, yeah, recommendations. Um, and in general, uh, the ability to make predictions and uh, medical diagnosis and so forth, uh, this all emerged as, uh, you know, as, as a result of the, uh, of the breakthrough in neural networks. So there have been major advances in artificial intelligence, but can the machines really think? This is a question that has confounded uh, scientists and philosophers since the beginning of computer science many decades ago. A forefather of computer science, Alan Turing, took a famous first shot at this question long ago with an idea still known today as the Turing test. I asked Dr. Nitzberg, to describe the Turing test and how relevant it is today. Yes, the Turing test is a a simple way to determine whether a system is you know has has achieved artificial intelligence, and and I believe it is no longer sufficient for as a test. But I'll, I'll describe it. Uh, you have a conversation between uh, a person who is, is testing the system and, uh, and the system, which takes place through typing, right? So, uh, uh, and then you have uh, a, a real person on, behind one screen and a, a, a machine behind another screen, and you can't tell which is which, right? So mm-hmm. that that's hidden to you. And the tester then holds a conversation with each and if the tester cannot tell the difference between a conversation with the human and a conversation with the machine, why then uh, that's artificial intelligence? So I think that's a, that's a nice thought experiment, and uh, it, it has several problems. One is that uh, we have so much processing power that we can now make a pretty good uh, system uh, that uh, many people will find that this is just like a person. Right? And, and several others will not. Mm-hmm. And then you need to understand uh, how to try to trick it and, and, and uh, you know, throw it a curveball and so forth while you're, while you're having a conversation and then you change the subject really quickly three times and see whether it can keep up with you and that sort of thing. But, but with sufficient training and sufficient uh, ingenuity, uh, we could fool most of the people most of the time. And that still does not mean that we have uh, artificial intelligence in the general sense. It means that we've done better at narrow AI. It, it gives the appearance of cognitive behavior. So, in fact, in the 60s, I believe it was Joseph Weizenbaum who wanted to prove that you cannot make, uh, you know, a, a essentially a human consciousness in a machine by building something called ELISA. And this was a famous um, experiment where he built a a simple program that would turn 
um, turn conversational questions around and feed them back to uh, to, to the user uh, in a way that, that seemed to be a therapist. And mm-hmm. so uh, you would say, I'm, I'm not feeling well, it would say, well, uh, tell me more. <laughs> and then you'd say, well, I, I had a run-in with my girlfriend. Ah, well, does, does that remind you of your mother? You know, just have sort of a handful of questions that sounded like therapist questions. And there were people who, after the a lot of period uh, interacting with the system, would, would send him away and say, no, 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 I'm not finished. And then they would want to continue <laughs> their conversations. So, so it really did pass the Turing test. And w- what he wanted to prove was that passing the Turing test does not mean you had created artificial intelligence. And we're at a, a stage now where we can do much better than ELISA, but I don't believe that uh, that, that proves that we have uh, artificial general intelligence at this stage. Well, let me bring up as the next question, sort of compare something that I believe most listeners will believe has been achieved and something that we're still not sure yet. So the idea that a computer system can take information about roads and intersections and traffic patterns and recommend a way for you to drive through a city at rush hour, I think most people, except for those the most suspicious of technology, would agree that uh, that's been achieved. Uh, The next step, can the artificial intelligence drive the vehicle through rush hour for you? Uh, What sort of leaps of uh, abilities need to happen in order to say we've achieved that latter goal? Well, I love this question because I've been thinking about it uh, for the last couple of years, and we have a group called Berkeley Deep Drive that's applying uh, deep learning and and, uh, neural network technologies to autonomous driving for a number of companies that are developing that. It's really interesting because to a person, everyone working uh, on this believes that it's been five years away for about 30 years, and it's still five years away. (laughs) Uh, and it could be a quite a long time before we get it. And uh, I think the, the the way to think about it is what we're doing is we're asking uh, we're asking the system to take all of the perceptual inputs through cameras and radar and lidar, which is a laser kind of radar, and and numerous other inputs, and uh, and combine it with really high quality maps and determine what to do at every heartbeat uh, uh, while driving a car. Uh, And this seems like it should be uh, something that we could solve, and we are getting ever closer, but the the challenges that we're finding uh, are the hardest have to do with social norms. Mm -hmm. So when you come to an intersection, you glance around, you look at the faces of the other drivers, and you size them up. And you say, well, this one looks mad. Maybe I'll just back off and wait for him to cross, right? Mm-hmm. I especially do and, that when, and, when I'm on bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And those social norms vary from city to city and from you know daytime to nighttime and mm-hmm. certainly from culture to culture. And so we have a lot of work to do to capture all of that to make the best decision at every point. And then there, there are situations... I, I, I like to show a couple of pictures. There's situations where you see a uniformed officer waving you around uh, a traffic stop. Mm-hmm. You know, for for you know the the police are checking IDs, and the way they wave would change from country to country. But suppose we get that right, and you, you pull over, the car pulls over. You know, how exactly do you deal with that situation? Uh, and then there are similar. Uh, situations where a uniformed officer would make the same gesture, but they have a 
uh, a grenade in their hand, right? And they're, they're actually dispersing a crowd. And you don't want to follow the, the direction of the grenade in that case, right? And so getting absolutely everything right in every social situation uh, requires a kind of, of general um, understanding uh, and problem-solving and planning, uh, which will require, in our view, uh, several more breakthroughs. So you think that if there were uh, an artificial intelligence that would control your car in a rush hour, there would be the, you know, the Shanghai download, the uh, Calcutta download, and the San Francisco download? I think so, and I think it would need a, a certain flexibility and uncertainty about what's right in any situation, and that would need to, to be able to interact with the passengers uh, or with the other vehicles and, and, and so on. Now, this is not to say that this is that it is going to take an eternity to have cars driving themselves. Right now, cars and trucks can drive themselves in limited driving situations, and uh, that's what level four autonomy from the the SAE uh, is defined as: that a car that can um, control uh, and drive in a uh, in in limited. Uh, driving situations as well as or better than a human driver. So so it, as soon as it encounters a situation that it cannot handle, then it will pull over and, and wait for help. And uh, there are companies that are um, offering self-driving taxi service, for example, in Shenzhen, China, there's a company called Roadstar, and it should be going live pretty soon, where the cars will drive themselves until they encounter a situation that uh, can't be handled, and then they will hand over control to a remote driver. And there will be a group of drivers that, that have remote control of these cars in a warehouse somewhere. Um, and that, that brings us to a, a, another point about the, the last bit of AI, right? When we really need a human involved, many of these systems have a human in the loop, and they're necessary for training, and they may be necessary for situations that simply can't be handled yet automatically. And so this creates a, a new class of job, for example, the remote taxi driver that could probably handle five or even ten taxis because not all of them need human help at any given time. But it's a, it's a new kind of job. You've been listening to Mark Nitzberg, Executive Director of the Center for Human-Compatible Artificial Intelligence at UC Berkeley. Mark studied AI at MIT and completed his Ph.D. at Harvard University. He is a principal at the think tank network Cambrian.ai. He teamed up with Olaf Groth, the CEO of Cambrian.ai, and a professor of strategy, innovation, and economics to write the book Solomon's Code, Humanity, in a world of thinking machines. The book Solomon's Code will be available in bookstores starting November 6th. That's all for this special edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from David Byrne. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.